Can I invite you to, to please, if you've got a copy of, of the Bible, if you would please turn back uh, to Luke chapter 9. What was it? It was Luke chapter 9 from verse 18 and, and onwards, those couple of very short sections that really stick together, I think, if I'm honest. Turn back with me, Luke chapter 9. If you've got a phone, I'm sure you can look it up, Luke 9 from verse 18. And let me, let me just say that um, I know very little about classical music. I know very, very little about classical music, um, despite uh, being from this very long line of classical music teachers and classical uh, music aficionados, I'm pretty much entirely ignorant uh, when it comes uh, to these things. But there is uh, one piece of classical music uh, that often sticks in my mind, and I, I quite like, if I get it right, I quite like Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture, uh, and I like it because of the way that it ends. If you, um, if you know the piece of music, you'll know this. You'll know that towards the, the finale of the piece of music, and to mark the sort of climactic moment of the overture, what did Tchaikovsky do? But he incorporated into the score, wait for it, he incorporated cannon fire into the score. That's what you need to be doing, isn't it? More, more of that. Okay, if, uh, if you've not got the budget, I think Tchaikovsky was okay with like, fireworks. You're allowed to have fireworks. But if you want to do it properly, what's he saying? To mark the climactic moment, he's like, right, what do I need here? What do I, I, to mark the apex of this, I know we need some cannons going off. That's what we need. Well, this morning at St. Peter's, perhaps we should be anticipating some explosions. Why do I say that? Because in the section that we've read together, what we what we find, what we come to, is really the apex, the climactic moment of the whole of the gospel according to Luke up until this point. We're reaching the apex, the pinnacle up until this point. Now, do you see, if you think about it, we have, we have looked at an, an, an awful lot of material over the last year. We, we've, we've looked into all of those very sort of uh, intricate, detailed infancy narratives. You remember them? Then we move into this Galilean ministry of the Lord Jesus and we, we go with him step by step. Now, it's true to say that in a sense that all of that material has been working its way, building up to this moment this morning, the moment we come to here just now in St. Peter's when what happens? But cannons fire, fireworks sound, and today, confession is made. Here, confession is made of Jesus' identity, of his person, and his work. This is the apex. This is the pinnacle thus far. And maybe some of you of a certain vintage will have heard of four weddings and a funeral. And most of us will have heard of that phrase, killing two birds with one stone, maybe you have noticed in this portion of scripture that what Jesus does is he issues two questions and a command. 
two questions and a command. And what we're going to do, you and I, is we're just going to grab that this morning and we're going to follow that for the structure of our sermon. So today, just now, at this pinnacle, the apex of everything that we've seen thus far in Luke's gospel, we're going to think about and notice Jesus' two questions and his command. But before we do that, let's bow before God and ask for his help and his light. Lord, we come humbly to your word And we do ask, Lord God, that as we study this pinnacle of Luke's gospel thus far, that you would indeed speak to your people. Lord God, would you grant us greater knowledge of the gospel, greater insight into the gospel? Would you also grant us a greater love of the gospel? And we pray in Jesus' name and for his name's sake. Amen. So you got it, two questions and a command. Let's consider then the first of these questions that we find here. Oh dear, this is the time of year, isn't it, when many people think about New Year's resolutions. New Year's uh, resolutions. Most of them, like, come on, most of them have already been broken, if we're, if we're honest about things, haven't they? But certainly within church circles, these things very often center around spiritual disciplines, don't they? We hear a lot of chat, chit-chat about Bible reading plans, reading the Bible more, praying more. In 2024, we hear about that. Now, perhaps because of that, we should pay extra attention, I think, to the setting of where we are right now. So I wonder if we could put up verse 18 or have a look, a quick look at verse 18. Pay attention to the setting. Where are we? Do you notice this first phrase? Now, it happened that, what's the setting? As he was praying alone. As Jesus was praying. All this we've got here happens just in the bank of Jesus praying alone. Now, we've actually seen before that uh, the author that we're dealing with, Luke, that he tends to make much of uh, Jesus, of our Lord's prayer life. Do you remember that we've looked at that? So more than Matthew and more than Mark and more than John, more than the other gospel writers, it is Luke who tends to underline and be very, very concerned for Jesus' prayer routines. Okay, now we've seen that before. I think we need to or we ought to add to that because it's also important to notice that as you look at Luke's gospel, throughout Luke's gospel, what you find is Jesus concentrate on private prayer or take himself away for private prayer in advance of the major events of his life. Does everyone hear that? So as a significant moment looms for Jesus, time and time again in Luke's gospel, you find our Lord just remove himself for times of private, sincere prayer. You could probably already think of some examples. What happened Uh, when Jesus was about to choose the 12 disciples. Do we remember? Pulls himself away for private prayer. Or, wait a minute, what about the baptism? Do you know he does the same in advance of his baptism? He does it here. He does it in the transfiguration. And then you think about the cross. Hang on, what does Jesus do at Gethsemane? But he takes himself away, doesn't he? To spend a time in sincere and, and, and private prayer. Friends, is there not, even as we just begin this morning, is there not something of a lesson in that for you 
as a Christian and, and for me? Because surely it's, it's got to be the case that in 2024, you and I are going to face some pretty significant moments in our lives, and we don't know what they are. Surely it's the case that there are some major events looming large. Should we not now at the beginning of this year resolve that in these things we are going to follow the pattern of our Lord? Will we not resolve that we are going to follow the example of our Lord? And when these major events loom large, what do we do? But we ensure that we pull ourselves away for private prayer. When these significant moments they loom in the horizon. Let's bring ourselves away for sincere, private, but let's cover these things before God in prayer. So there's a lesson even in the setting, but, but now Jesus speaks. And he speaks to his disciples and he asks them a question. So can you see it on the screen at the end of the verse? So he speaks to them and he asks the 12. So he's prayed and then he asks, okay, so... Who do the crowds say that I am? You got it there? Who do the crowds say that I am? So, so I, I wonder, St. Peter's this morning, what do you think of that question? Who do the crowds say that I am? I think it's such an interesting question. I think that pretty much all of us will be able to see exactly what's in view. If you've got a Bible, you can just look at the beginning of chapter 9 and your memory will be jogged, I think. So what's happened, if you remember, is that the disciples have just been sent out, haven't they? Do you remember that on mission? And they've got to go through the, the towns and the cities and the villages and proclaiming. And, and so they're interacting with the populace, the population. And then they come back. And you can see what Jesus is asking them. He's asking them, okay, guys, so... What's the word on the street? That's the nature of the question, isn't it? You've been mixing with the population. So tell me, Jesus says to the 12, tell me, well, like, what are people concluding? Who are, they, who are they suggesting? Who are they concluding that I am? And, and I think again, almost immediately, and, and desperate not to overburden us, I think again, there's application for us. You think about that question. Is there not an inference that we can make? What is it? Jesus saying, who do the crowds say that I am? What can we infer? Can we not infer that Jesus expects his followers to have an ear to the ground? I mean, hear the question. Who do the crowds say, say, say that I am? Like Jesus here, like we're seeing, he, he desires that his people are out. That his people are, are having conversations with the community. He desires that his people are, are, are asking those they meet, who is it you conclude that, that Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus of Nazareth might be? I, I wonder, friends, brother and sister in, in St. Peter's, I wonder if you find that a challenging idea, that we are to have our ear to the ground and having conversations with other people about Jesus. I'm telling you for nothing, I, I find it an incredibly challenging idea. I also wonder this, if Jesus were here and asking us this question, and if he had our colleagues and our friends in view, and the people that we meet, and the mums at the school gate, and the dads at the school gate, and the, the people you work with, and, and Jesus were to ask us of those people, who do they say that I am? I wonder 
would we know? I wonder, could we even give an answer? So we see the setting in a challenge. We, we see the question, and there's a challenge. Surely there is. But then we have to get to the answer, this, this answer that the disciples give. So I wonder if you would walk with me into verse 19, and if we could project that, or you have a wee look at that. So Jesus looks to the 12 and asks, okay, so what's the word on the street? Who do, who do people say I am? And here's the, the, the answer that's given. Read it with me, would you please? So, so the answer, uh, John the Baptist. Some are saying that. Some are, some are saying Elijah. And some are saying one of the prophets of old has risen. Now, thankfully, the technology has worked. And it's, it's up on the screen behind me there. So as you look at that, everyone's got it displayed there. Can I ask you what jumps out at you? What do you find interesting? What, what, what is of note in that? I mean, uh, certainly you'll notice that there are three different responses that people give. Isn't that right? Now, isn't that interesting in, in itself? They're not unanimous. It's not that the disciples report back and say, everyone thinks you're Elijah. It's not that. Like we're seeing clearly that people were varying in their conclusions about the identity of Jesus. Now, that's obvious, but I do think there's another element that we should notice as well. And that's that though the crowd disagree on who Jesus is, they're all unanimous that Jesus is indeed someone special. Isn't that of note? So the disciples are not feeding back and saying, oh, some people out there, actually, Jesus, they just think you're a run-of-the-mill guy. That's not the answer, is it? Some of them, they think you're just one of these rabbis who's come down from Jerusalem just to check up on us, just another one of these scribes. No. Think about the answers. They think you're John the Baptist. They think you might be Elijah, even. Like, some of them think you've, you've risen from the dead. You're a prophet that's risen up. Did you see that they're saying they think you're somebody spit? Maybe even they think you're a prophet, like the three of these suggestions are. Do you see the crowd is saying, they, or the disciples are saying, they think you're somebody worthy of interest, worthy of honor. They think you are worthy of respect. And so, friends, this morning, I, I simply want to bring that to your door and to ask today, where do you land? on this question of Jesus' identity for you. So not for your mum, your dad, your kids, or this person sitting beside you, your neighbor here, but for you. Where do you land on the question of Jesus' identity? You. Like, could it be the case that, uh, joining in YouTube or in here today, could it be the case that your answer would be rather similar to the answer that the crowd is providing that actually there's this growing sense in you that perhaps you think, oh, well, maybe Jesus is. Maybe he is special. You know, after all of these years of me ignoring Jesus, maybe it is that you've got to the point you're thinking maybe he is worthy of respect. If that's your answer, oh, I want you to see what you're supposed to see in this portion of Scripture. That from in a moment, Jesus pressing the disciples for more, you've got to see that that sort of answer is not enough. 
As you sit here with a new year stretching out before you, understand this. Jesus of Nazareth does not just seek your respect. He seeks your worship. He doesn't just seek your acknowledgement. Jesus of Nazareth seeks this year your praise. Do you know what? The fitting response to Jesus of Nazareth is not you and I just doffing our cap and church attendance. The fitting response this year is us throwing ourselves to the ground, bowing to him in full submission as the one who is the king of kings. So who does the crowd say that I am? Then we move to a second matter, don't we? We said two questions and a conclusion. What would that second question be? Well, we'll get to that. What I want to to, to ask you to think about just now, what I would ask you just now is, what do you think is the biggest question in the world as we start a new year? What do you think, if you were to ask people, what do you think is the the most important question in the world today? Um, As part of my uh, undergraduate degree, a long time ago, uh, I did a module. I can't remember how long it was. I think it was for the whole year. But it was a module on anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. So I did a module of that as part of my undergraduate degree. Fascinating module. But I do remember sitting in the exam room. <laughs> I may have told you this before, certainly some of you. But I remember sitting in the exam hall at the end <laughs> of this module and I remember sitting there with a little bit of trepidation and turning over the exam paper, as you do, and I remember reading question one. You know how it is you've got to write an essay on certain of these questions and take your pick. And I remember reading it, and it was question one. How, write an essay, how would you solve the Palestinian-Israeli conflict? I was what? You know, sort of nine o'clock in McEwen Hall in Edinburgh, you're rubbing your eye. What is that? You know, asking students, like one state solution, two state solution. How? I was thinking, right, what are the other questions? <laughs> Immediately. Well, that's a question, isn't it? And I think if we were to go out and we were to ask people and certain social commentators and ask people in the world, a lot of people today would say, well, actually... That's perhaps one of the most important questions that the world faces in 2024. Well, in actual fact, what I want to underline just now is that on this, the first Sunday of a new year, our God doubles down on the matter that we have just addressed and he takes you to what is the most important question of all, and you will see it if you look at verse 20. If we could look at that. What comes from the lips of Jesus? He doubles down, and Jesus says, but who do you say I am? Now, this is how I want to approach things. What I I want us to do, you and I, just now, is I want you and I to make just, just a few very brief and snappy observations of this before we get to the heart of the matter. Let's do that. Number one, quick observation. What we see here is that Jesus clearly doesn't just want people going along with the crowd. I say that again. 
Jesus clearly doesn't want people going along with the crowd. That's what we hear of Christianity, isn't it? People say that of Christians. Evidently, that's not the case. Do you see what I mean? To whom does Jesus ask this question? Do you notice he's looking now at the 12 and he asked the 12 this. Do you see what he's doing? He is pressing his disciples to think for themselves, isn't he? He's pressing them to, to use their own minds. Don't just go along with what other people are concluding. Think for yourself. First observation. Second observation. If you're reading it closely, you'll see that it's Peter himself who answers that question, isn't it? I, I highlight that just to, to ask the question, why? Why is it Peter? Is it because Peter... Maybe we need to address this as a congregation. But is it because Peter is on a higher plane to the others? Is it because Peter's special? Is it because Peter is a pope in waiting? Is it? No. I mean, it's a simple answer, isn't it? It's because here Peter is acting as spokesman for the 12, as Peter with his temperament was inclined to, to do, isn't it? That's the second observation. Third observation, very briefly, What we see, and I've stolen the the phrase, what we see here is a definite conviction. Because we're used to, you and I, lots of speculation at this time of year. Would you agree? The parents and the grandparents in the room, you've had to deal with speculation all December about what presents are going to be under the tree and what presents certain kids are going to get. Yeah, yeah, so we're used to that. But then the rest of us, in, like in society, there's so much speculation at this time of year about what 2024 is going to bring for Scotland, for the rest of the world. Isn't there? And isn't that what we've just seen from the crowd? You see the speculation? Like all of these people ruminating, discussing, speculating, maybe he's Elijah. You know, maybe he's John the Baptist. All of this speculation. And do you notice on the screen how different it is here? Do you notice? Like rather than speculation, we've got surety now. We've got a certain degree of certainty. For what, what does Peter say? He answers, you are, literally you are. And then he goes in, the Christ of God. The Christ of God. So some brief observations, but let's get to the heart of the matter. And of course, (laughs) what that answer means, the Christ of God. When I was in my previous charge, in my, my previous church, for the duration of my time down south, so for the best part of 10 years, um, I had this lovely, lovely bloke in the, in the congregation. So he was there for nearly the whole time. He was a, uh, he was a New Testament professor. Uh, so for the whole time that I was in London, I had an expert in Greek. He sometimes used to read, this is a bit geeky maybe, but he used to read his Greek New Testament as he would take the tube into into church, okay? So I had an expert in Greek for the duration of my time down south. So that's me down south. Then I move up here. And what do I find? But I've got a Greek family in in the congregation. So you can imagine, whenever it is that I speak about the language 
in which most of the New Testament was written. And when I ever speak about Greek, I do so with a great degree of trepidation. But there is a rather simple matter here, something straightforward. Please gather in the details. You see, the term that Peter uses in this verse, Christos, is really the Greek equivalent of a very, very, very special Hebrew word, a word you all know, the word Messiah, Messiah, meaning anointed one. Now, very recently at St. Peter's, we have seen together that in the Old Testament, there were three roles, prophet, priest, and king, that each involved being anointed as a way of being set apart for that task of prophet, priest, or king, we have been set apart before God. Now, we've seen that. But wait a minute here. What else do we know? I think we know, don't we, that throughout the Old Testament, there was this growing anticipation that one day a special Messiah of God, a special anointed one would rise up. There was this anticipation he would come, he would rise up, and what would he do? But he would deliver his people. And this was a special anointed one, a figure that we have found in Luke's gospel was Davidic and also regal, royal. And he's also a figure that we learn in this verse was a messiah of God. So actually a deliverer, this anticipation of a deliverer who would actually come and deliver his people and come directly from the throne of heaven itself. Now Christos, as you gather all of those details of this Christos to your heart, do you see what's happening here in this verse, in verse 20? Can I tell you what's happened? The fog has cleared that's what's happened for Peter. I think everyone here, certainly if you're resident in Scotland, you know exactly what that's like. We were driving down from, from Aberdeen on New Year's Day morning, crack of dawn, New Year's Day morning, driving down. There's hardly anything else on the road. Tell you what was on the road? Fog. Serious fog. You know the sort of fog? The pea soup type fog. On with the fog lights, you reduce the speed. You can't see anything at all in, in, in front of you. are going through this laboring down that road from, from Aberdeen mile after mile. And do you know, then it happened. Then it happened. It wasn't gradual, friends. All of a sudden, our car just burst through the fog. And if you remember New Year's Day morning, it was a beautiful morning. And apart from the fog, there wasn't a cloud in the sky. The sun just burst through it. And it just suddenly, you see the countryside, and it's illumined in this glorious early morning light. Do you see, that is what's happened for Peter. Like either gradually or, or actually in this moment, he realizes before Jesus, who is this? He realizes the light. He realizes the glory of his identity. Like Peter's realizing, wait, that the one that I've been following, 
The one who has called me, the one I've heard preach, the one I've seen perform miraculous things, the one who does not even have somewhere to lay his head. The one who is beginning to face the rejection of men. This is none other than this long-awaited Messiah, anointed one of God. And a writer just encapsulates it, but I think he encapsulates it in just a few words beautifully. And he says this, here, verse 20, Peter realizes that Jesus is not just one of the messengers. Do you see? Not John the Baptist, messenger. Elijah, messenger. One of the prophets, messenger. He realizes that Jesus is the message himself. Not the one being pointed to, but the one, not the one pointing, but the one pointed to. Now, I spoke of Greek. Let me do so again. In biblical Greek, there's this practice. We, we have it sometimes in English, but I don't think as much. But in biblical Greek, there's a, the practice of moving terms sometimes around in a phrase, moving a certain word in a sentence to a particular place for emphasis, to stress a particular word. You get the idea? I want you to appreciate that happens here. Because what we find is Jesus moving the word you to the start of the question. Do you, do you hear? Jesus is saying, you. But you, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Do you see Jesus very much here is getting personal. I think it's almost like our Lord looks up from this episode and Jesus looks at St. Peter's and the Lord Jesus Christ, he looks at you where you're sitting in here this morning and you hear Jesus say to you, you, who do you say that I am? I wonder this morning, how do you respond to the King of Kings? I wonder, can you stand with Peter can you make the same confession that he makes? Can you say, oh, beloved Jesus, I say with conviction, definite conviction, you are the Messiah. You are the anointed one. Jesus, I know by faith in God's grace alone, you are the Christ of God. So we see the two questions, and then most briefly, what was the third thing? A command. Now, Christian friends, um, some terms that we use, they mean, I think this is true inside and outside the church, but some terms that we use, they mean different things to different people. Some of the terms we use in the English language, they mean different terms, uh, different things to different people. I'll give you an example, and we can fight about it afterwards. Um, so let's take the, the word, the common word that we use, the word evangelical. Evangelical. And so I think for, for some and perhaps for most of us, that's a positive word that we would use uh, to talk about what? A, a Bible-believing Christian would we go for that, something like that? Someone following the ev evangel. So that's true. That's what it means for a lot of us in here. For others, it's actually a derogatory term. 
evangelical, for those not like us, those broadly Christian who are not really taking worship or scripture all that uh, carefully. And then still, there's others. Evangelical. For some, it's a political term, isn't it? Some use that, if they're especially in, in, in the US, they'll use it for certain factions of right-wing American politics, the evangelicals. Some terms mean different things to different people. Well, we have to appreciate that this was obviously, of course, the same in Bible times. And we have to appreciate that this term, Christos, in the first century world, it carried with it distinctly military overtones. That term Christos, for, for the majority of the Jews in the first century, they anticipated a Messiah. And what was this Messiah going to do? This Messiah would rise up and simply all he would do is deliver his people from under the weight and the burden of Roman occupation. You see, distinctly military overtones, Christos. Well, because of that, yes, you'll have noticed that Jesus, do you notice he commands his disciples here not to speak about his Messiahship. He says, shh. But he does more. You'll notice that Jesus also seizes this opportunity that this confession brings to teach the 12 what the true mission of the Christ of God would involve. No, he teaches them what the mission of the Christ of God must involve. And this is how I want us to, to come into land this morning at St. Peter's. I want us to look at and display verse 22. And I've got a test for you to keep you awake. We're talking about the true mission of the Christ. I want you just to note the four infinitives or four aspects of this necessary mission of the deliverer. The four of them. In a word, can we get them? Did, did Christ just come to deliver them from Rome? Number one, do you see Christ tells us the Christ must suffer. Can you try to imagine how shocking that would have been for Peter to hear and for the others to hear? I mean, this was entirely contrary to, to Jewish expectation. The Christ must what? Suffer. And do you not agree that the addition on the screen really drums it home to us? Because what does it say? He must, the Messiah, must suffer many things. And Christian friend, do you recognize this morning how true that is for you? For you, he suffered false allegations and false accusations for you. And he suffered the betrayal of his friends for you. And the abuse of all those Roman soldiers, he suffered that for me and, and for you. And the, the contempt of even criminals on the cross for you and for me. And he, and, he, and he suffered shame in public and he did it for you and me. The Christ of God, 
mystery of mysteries. He suffered. Second infinitive. Did you recognize it? Did you pick it up? Did you get it? The Christ of God must also be rejected. Now, note by whom? Now, oh, you have to think about this one. Who does he single out? Rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Now, we have to ask, don't we? Like, why? When he's rejected by men, so why is it that Jesus singles out those people? Why does he do that? I think you know. You can see it, can't you? These were the three groups that made up the ruling body of Judaism, the Sanhedrin. And now you can see what was in view, can't you? It's that later trial, isn't it? For Jesus, the Christ of God, would not just be rejected. He would be legally rejected. He would be officially rejected. Are you not astonished? Are you not? We're in Luke chapter 9. And even here, the Lord Jesus Christ looks ahead and he knows his feet. He can speak of that trial before the Sanhedrin in detail. You're not astonished that he would continue on this path out of love for you? Third, the Christ must be, what does it say? He must be killed. The Christ of God. I, I think it's the, the parable that Luke will later record that really makes us very alive uh, for us, so familiar we are with Luke's gospel. Do you remember the parable in Luke chapter 20 of the vineyard owner? Do you remember? And the vineyard owner, he has tenants in his vineyard. And he sends to those tenants his servants. Can, you, can everyone remember what they did? And they beat his servants. So what does the vineyard owner resolve to do? And please, Christian friend, remember that it, this is a parable from Jesus' own lips. What does the vineyard owner? He sends to the tenants his son. They won't beat him. He sends his son, and, and, and what do they do? The tenants kill his son. Jesus tells us, that is what this great long-promised Messiah of God had come to face. A death, an execution, and, and all to bear your sin. But let us not make a mistake. Let's not miss the fourth and the last of the infinitives. Because here... The church of Jesus Christ can rejoice. What's the last of these? Jesus tells the 12 at this moment, on the back of the confession, yes. But the Christ of God must be raised, must be raised. What wonder, what wonder the mission of the Messiah would not end in death. And I, I want you to appreciate the passive nature of the verb. It doesn't say that he would rise. It says he would be raised. Do you see what would happen? That Jesus, having perfectly obeyed his father, his father would act to vindicate him. 
to, to raise him up victorious, that yes, Jesus reveals the shocking truth that Christ will suffer, yes, but glory awaited for the Son of God. And where do we end? Oh, we start with classical music. What note do we sound as we end? I just want to read you one phrase to close. Now, this is taken from later on in the Bible, in the book of Acts, and it's Acts chapter 2. Who speaks in Acts 2? The same man is here, right? Peter. Same man is here. And Peter, in Acts 2, is preaching. And he's preaching to all of Jerusalem. It's Pentecost. Now, I want you to listen very carefully to what Peter declares openly and proudly at Pentecost. Now, everyone's going to get this. Listen carefully. Acts 2.36, Peter preaches at Pentecost to the gathered crowd and says this. God has made this same Jesus both Lord and... I'll say it again. Peter preaches, God has made this same Jesus both Lord and Christ. Christos. Do, do you see how how important that is. With at that stage, Jesus Christ having completed his messianic work and the cross and that empty tomb, do you see there the ban, the prohibition of Luke chapter nine was lifted. No longer was it, no longer was it, do not mention my messianic status. No, now and today, the role of the church of Jesus Christ is not to be silent on these things. Our role is to tell all the world that Jesus is the Messiah of God, the Christos of God. Friends, I care nothing for New Year's resolutions. I'm sure you're exactly the same. Who cares? But surely at the start of a new year, you and I should resolve to at least speak more of Jesus of Nazareth, to keep our ear to the ground, but to tell Dundee, to tell Broughty Ferry, to tell Scotland, God has sent a Messiah for us and he has come to deliver his church and his people from sin, from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin. And one day, hallelujah, we will be entirely delivered even from the presence of sin. May God receive all the glory. Let's pray.